0: The Desert Monks of Ancient Egypt, Part 1 What is a monk? The word monk is derived from the Greek word monakos, which means alone or solitary. In the early years of the 4th century, which are generally accepted as the embryonic years of Christian monasticism, solitary Christian aesthetics migrated into the desert wilderness of Egypt to engage in a life of spiritual discipline. Their extraordinary way of life became an inspiration to great numbers of people who, following their example, withdrew from the secular world and entered the desert wilderness. Why this migration took place, how such people were perceived, and why, so many, over so many years, followed the way of the Monacos, are issues too complex to be studied here. Nevertheless, we should reflect upon how, in the preceding centuries, The persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire had become even more frequent and violent, culminating in the great persecution instituted by the Emperor Diocletian in the year 303. It was to last for more than eight years, during which time thousands were killed and many more abused in the most terrible of ways, and it is reasonable to assume that during those years many fled into the wilderness lead a way of life free from oppression. The Great Persecution finally came to an end when Constantine became Emperor in the year 312. That Christians of the 2nd and 3rd centuries may also have looked to the desert as a place of refuge is a matter of speculation, as there are few records to guide us. It is probable, however, that during this period numerous people, albeit unrecorded, left the main centres of population and entered the wilderness to engage in the spiritual life free from religious intolerance, thereby establishing a precedent for the later solitaries of the 4th century. Another factor to be considered is the effect of the Edict of Milan, issued by Constantine and Licinius in the year 313. This edict granted religious freedom to Christians throughout the empire, and returned to them any properties previously confiscated by the state. As a consequence, the fortunes of the church were reversed and the power of the bishops increased. This unexpected turn of events was not without its problems, of which one in particular stands out. Before Constantine became emperor, the oppressed church consisted of people motivated by a need to seek spiritual perfection. Baptism was the first step, and it was hard won. It was clearly understood by the candidate that through baptism the soul became a member of the church, which was not simply an organization of people, but the living body of Christ, and in doing so received the grace and power to continue on the path of spiritual perfection, even in the face of state persecution. However, when Constantine broke the chains of the state persecution, he also forged inadvertently perhaps a new and more insidious means of bondage, by showering imperial favour and largesse upon the Church. Thus, as the privileges of the state were bestowed upon the Church, it quickly became fashionable to be a Christian. This proved to be a serious issue for the recently emancipated Church, because previous to the Edict of Milan, it had been normal for candidates to spend three years or more receiving spiritual instruction before being baptised. This ensured that candidates were effectively prepared for a spiritual way of life, and that the growth of the Church was organic and manageable. But as the secular fortunes of the Church increased, the number of socially aspiring applicants grew massively. The rapid increase in demand for membership generated unforeseen problems for the Church as it tried to cope with educating in the traditional manner the many thousands of people seeking to become Christians. In many cases, the motivation for spiritual perfection took second place to the desire for wealth, power and status. The result was that nominal Christians were to be found everywhere, whilst spiritually aspiring Christians were just as few as before the time of Constantine. Furthermore, conflicts arose within the Church concerning orthodoxy, heresy and the parameters of authority. In the light of these seismic changes, It is easy to understand how spiritually minded Christians of the 4th century fled not so much from the material world, but from the materialism infesting the Church, and from court bishops who were fighting each other for choice territories. One can imagine traditionally minded Christians fleeing from the unseemly politics of the Church, entering the wilderness of Egypt and Palestine to return to the ancient prescribed life of simplicity and spiritual purity. This was the context in which the desert monks emerged. The word monk was not then a commonplace name as it is today. Initially, the term monk or monacos was used specifically to describe a man living a spiritual life in solitude. Other terms were also used to describe these solitary ascetics, such as the word hermit or aramite, from the Greek word eremos, denoting an inhabitant of a desert. They were also called Anchorites, from Anchoria, which means I withdraw. Oremites or Anchorites were predominantly men who withdrew from the company of other people to dwell alone in isolation, although it is apparent that not all of them sought complete solitude, as it is recorded that many were accompanied by a disciple. As the 4th century progressed, many inspired Christians of both sexes were forming religious communities in the Egyptian desert. These communities were called cenobia, a term derived from the Greek word Cenobium, indicating a shared or common life. Their members were known as Cenobites, but as time passed, they were also called monks. In the early years of the 4th century, the most renowned solitary, St. Anthony, introduced a form of community life known as the eremitical. When he undertook the spiritual direction and organization of the many spiritual aspirants who had gathered around him. At about the same time, St. Pacomius found what may be considered the first conventional monastery, or Cenobium, at Tabina in the far south of Egypt. These community models or systems spread rapidly, and in a relatively short time were firmly established throughout the Levant. Erdomites or hermits were not specifically bound to a rule such as that undertaken by those dwelling in a Cenobium and, unlike the Cenobites, were generally free to wander at will. The river of Egyptian monasticism was fed by three tributaries. In Upper Egypt, through the influence of Pachomius, monasticism took the form of the Cenobium. In Lower Egypt, through the influence of Anthony, the aromatical type of monasticism predominated. A third was established in the mountains of Nitria, a desert some sixty miles south of Alexandria. The monks who dwelt in Nitria, in the wastes of Skeet, followed the lead of two great figures, Macarius, much influenced by Anthony, and Pambo. At its height, this movement consisted of five thousand monks, divided into fifty lavas or congregations. In due course, these systems merged more by mutual osmosis than anything else, and it became the custom for those seeking the life of a solitary or hermit to first enter a synobium where they received spiritual direction and guidance from the abbot, a preparation that could and frequently did take years before they were ready to undertake the arduous life of an anchorite. Yet regardless of the various names and titles, the term monk or monachos was by the middle of the 4th century commonly applied to those who were known to have consecrated their life to God, be they solitaries or cenobites. Thus I shall use the term monk henceforth. Did monasticism begin earlier than the 4th century? We will probably never know for certain. But apart from the political turmoil taking place in the 4th century, there are several interesting factors that suggest it may have. One is the role of John the Baptist in the Gospels. He is described in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 as being clothed in a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and that his food consisted of locusts and wild honey. And it is generally accepted that he resided in the wilderness. John was neither an isolated nor a unique example. Several Old Testament figures are closely associated with the desert. For example, Moses led the people of Israel into the desert wilderness for some forty years. See the book of Exodus. Another example is that the great Jewish prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings 17-19, to allude to traditions concerning the withdrawal from human society for the purpose of seeking spiritual knowledge and experience. So it is quite probable that small loose-knit communities of spirituals had already existed in the Wilderness previous to the 4th century. John the Baptist is particularly significant because if we accept that his recognition and acceptance of Christ made him a Christian, then he is the earliest known Christian solitary living in the Wilderness and engaging in the spiritual life. And clearly many of the Christians who entered the Wilderness with the purpose of communing with God saw John as their role model. This is obvious in the earliest texts of the Desert Fathers, many of which are contemporary or near-contemporary accounts of the lives and works of these extraordinary people. The earliest is the life of Anthony, issued in 357. We must bear in mind that Anthony died in 356. It was written by Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, who lived between 296 and 373. John's lifestyle particularly his diet of locusts and wild honey, may seem odd, if not unbelievable, to many readers. After all, where does one find a regular supply of locusts and honey? It is true that in the arid regions of North Africa and Palestine, there is a history of eating locusts when they are available, and it is possible that John may have taken advantage of this source of protein. However, this is highly unlikely, because the early solitaries generally disapproved of eating meat, vegetarianism being a fundamental characteristic of early monastic life. So where does John's diet fit into this scenario? Arguably it is a matter of translation. The Greek word that is usually translated into the English language as locusts is acridis, which does mean the insect, but it also refers to the locust bean plant otherwise known as the carob tree, a species of shrub or tree whose fruit is very nutritious and relatively easy to acquire, as it is native to Mediterranean countries, including Palestine, and is common in the arid regions of North Africa, including Egypt. Furthermore, the reference to wild honey may also be a question of mistranslation, as the Greek word for wild honey, agria, are thought by some be a misunderstanding of the word malagria or malagrion, which is a nutritious and versatile plant well known to solitaries and other dwellers in the wilderness. A diet including these plants is sustainable and consistent with the lives of the early solitaries who, following John's example, lived on the vegetation they found in the wilderness. It is evident that dietary control featured heavily in the asceticism of the Desert Fathers. Indeed, ascetic discipline of the solitary monk, following the example of John the Baptist, involved a restricted diet of simple and often uncooked foods that were typically eaten no more than once a day, and from time to time, during Lent, for example, even less frequently. Some are reputed to have fasted for many days, even weeks at a time. Most drank water only, and that sparingly, although some were occasionally known to have taken a little wine. Generally, the monks followed a simple vegetarian diet and were able to grow their own food, especially when they lived in communities, supplemented by other foodstuffs, bread, for example, obtained by the labour of their hands, in weaving linen, basket-making or rope-making. The solitaries tended to be more extreme, and varied in their approach, many of them following the example of John the Baptist foraging for food in the wilderness, which to the informed and observant is a plentiful and dependable larder. The most famous of the early solitaries, Saint Anthony and Paul of Thebes, established their asceticism upon the precepts of Scripture, particularly the Gospels, in which John plays a significant role. The Scriptures describe John as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, see Matthew 3 verse 3, whose mission was to prepare the people of Israel by teaching them a way of repentance as the precursor to spiritual regeneration, an undertaking established in baptism and completed in Christ. To the early followers of Christ, repentance meant changing entrenched behaviour patterns dictated by nature and social conditioning. To achieve this meant renouncing the world and undertaking a new way of life, a life of spiritual discipline rooted in Christ's words, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Matthew 19:21. The desert solitaries did just that, and in doing so they established in their asceticism a spiritual path that was available to all who had the will and strength to persevere. They lived according to the precepts of the scriptures which defined their rule of life, for no acceptable alternative existed until the mid-fourth century, when the celebrated Pacomius put into writing a rule itself based upon scripture for the life of the community of monks that grew around him at Tabena. And so we draw part one to a close and it will be continued in part two. I thank you.